Good morning, my name is Linda Keller, and today I'm going to be reading from the book of John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 20, and then I'll jump down to verse 34 and 35. You can find this scripture in your pew Bible on page 900. We'll start reading with John 13, verses 1 through 20. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during the supper, When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things to his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, You have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. 
And now down to verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me again. Father, I pray for the room right now. Would you speak to us? I knew where we were going and what this text said, and I feel, um, I feel a lot in this moment. So for my friends in the room who are carrying a lot, who've sung a lot, who've heard a lot, who've prayed a lot, would you meet them now in powerful ways? Jesus, we have a desperate need to know how, how you answer the questions of our heart, of where are you, why, how. Thank you for this text and what it shows us about you and your heart and what you've done and what you've taught and what you call us to. I pray in really profound ways, more than my notes are prepared to do, would you connect who you are and what you've done to where we are and what we need. Just ask that you would give that to my friends in the room. Comfort, correction, hope, grant repentance. Would you, would you wake us to the things of God? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, let me just kind of start um, with maybe where the question you're asking is, uh, did I change kind of where we were going in light of the things that happened this week? Um, I was actually really thankful for a space on Ash Wednesday, so after the events of the day, we gathered in this room, and um, just talking about what Lent is gives us a chance to do things like lament, and cry out, how long, O Lord, and ask for Him to help, and I was grateful that um, we had a space already marked out to just sit together and ask for God to speak to us. And then our plan was to jump into John 13 to 17 during the season of Lent to kind of preach through this last teaching of Jesus to his disciples as he's preparing to leave and he's getting them ready for what's about to happen with his death. And not just that, but also how to live in light of his resurrection. And as I thought through that, I thought, man, I, can't, I don't know if I could pick a better text to jump into after the events of this week. And I think they would be perfect if the events of the week hadn't happened because it's where we find ourselves with this key question of, Jesus, what are you doing about the brokenness in the world? Jesus, what do you think about the brokenness of the world? Jesus, what are you going to do to fix what's broken in the world? And that's a question that you wear all the time, you feel all the time, it rolls around in the back of your mind. Even if you found yourself vacillating between deep sadness and also numbness this week, if as the details of the story broke out, you found yourself saying, oh, it's just another shooting, it's like a regular shooting. If you found yourself in that space and then just let the words of that go, oh my oh my gosh, how, how numb are we to the brokenness and evil in the world that we would get callous to things? Or may, maybe far from callous, maybe you've changed your social patterns. You've said, I mean, I'm never going to be in a crowd again. This week might have been full of anxiety for you or anger or deep sadness. You may know 
people, you might have been there, you might be having trouble sleeping, all those spaces, I think the question at the back of all of that is, what does Jesus think about this? What would he do about this? What, what does the Bible say? And so what we see in this text is Jesus showing us what God thinks about this. And what happens in this passage is it kicks off a longer teaching that lasts for five whole chapters of Jesus talking about the things that Lent is about. About hope for sure, about His coming, about His return, about His plan, which we look to in Lent, but also why we should repent, what there is to be sad about. He even comforts in multiple places, like in verse four, or chapter one, verse, sorry, chapter 14, verse 1, He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in Me. In chapter 16, verse 33, he says, I've said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Like what an amazing gift to give his followers in moments of tragedy and crisis. And though he is foreshadowed for them that he's going to the cross, they still don't quite understand. Even this scene has a lot of mystery around it for them. They're not quite tracking yet with what Christ has done, which is a good news for us because we're not quite tracking yet with how Jesus fits into our world. And so I think the text actually puts us in a really helpful place as we think through what would Jesus say, what would he do, what has he done to make a difference in this space. Because what we see Jesus doing is coming into this space with his followers those who will betray him, those who will doubt him, those who will deny him. And he takes on a towel, the form of a servant. And he doesn't just take on a towel, he actually will, will take on a cross to find a way to forgive and to save and to ransom these people. So in that space, what you see is something really, really profound as Jesus models for us the heart of God for broken people and not just gives us a sentimental story of a high and mighty king who would humble himself. It's actually a pattern of the cross. It shows us what God was willing to do to actually save us and forgive us. So there is a ton going on in this story. I, I want to use it to kind of walk through maybe three movements. I want to talk about kind of how this points to the cross. I want to talk about a provocative contrast that's happening in the text. And then I want to talk about a powerful command that he gives us there towards the end. It'll help a little bit just to understand what's going on in John. So John is written a little bit differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's same content, but maybe from some different angles. And oftentimes what happens in the book of John is Jesus will do something, like he'll raise the dead. As Lazarus is in, in John, he raises the dead, and then he'll stop and he'll give commentary and say, hey, don't miss it, I am the resurrection and the life. He will feed 5,000 and then he'll stop and say, hey, don't miss it, hey, I am the bread of life. He'll do a healing and then he'll stop and say, hey, don't miss it. I am the light of the world. So, so he does something and then he explains it as a pattern throughout John. So have that in your mind with what he does here to kick off this teaching. In so many ways, it's a summary of what we're going to see in the next few chapters. It shows you Jesus' heart for his people. It shows you what he desires to do. And just to like raise the stakes so we don't miss it, the way John starts in chapter 13 kind of cues us off to the significance of what's going on. Maybe you've heard this story before. It's actually a really famous Christian story. It's, it's good for VBSs. It's good for bedtime stories. It's, it's good for Sunday school lessons. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it could catch you as really strange. Who is Jesus and why is he washing feet and what's, 
what's happening. So it could feel obscure or it could feel sentimental if we're not careful. And to battle both of those, jump with me in verse 1 of chapter 13. Just listen to the way John layers for three verses like the significance of what's going on. So, so he starts in verse 1. He says, hey, now let me put you in the setting here. This is before the Feast of Passover. Okay, that means that for thousands of years, God's people have been celebrating this moment where He delivered them from slavery out of Egypt. He had them cross the Red Sea. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. It was the way God ransomed His people. And the Passover meal was a meal where um, God saved His people as they symbolically trusted in Him through sacrificing a lamb and smearing its blood on the doorpost of their house. Okay, that's an intense scene. And John wants to say, hey, this is what's going on in the background. This is what people are thinking about. They're thinking about a lamb that was sacrificed to save people, to to deliver them, to ransom them from slavery. That's the, the space that we're in. And he says that Jesus knew that His hour had come. This was the time. This was the moment. This is what everything was pointing to. So it's not just a random event in God's sovereignty and providence. He's lined up this event that people have been celebrating for a millennium with this moment where Jesus now will fully explain who He is, what He came to do, and He's about to go to the cross. It is the actual hour that God had ordained for Him to depart from the world and to return to the Father. And as you watch that and you go, okay, so this is about a powerful, sovereign God doing powerful, sovereign things. The next phrase says that He has, has loved His own who were in the world and He loved them all the way to the end. So He heightens kind of the context. He gives you kind of a chronology saying this has been always the plan. And what Jesus is doing in this moment isn't just teaching, giving instruction, giving parting words. He is showing them His love and He will go all the way to the end. This is the beginning of something incredibly profound that will actually change the universe. Okay, then he says, during supper when the devil, there, whoa, okay, we go Passover, we go chronology, we go love, now we go supernatural forces that have always been opposed to the work of God. We've seen Jesus go to war against the devil in casting out demons and in healing people. We've seen him go to war in the desert for 40 days as he fasted and prayed and defeated the temptation of the evil one, which was a, a mirror of actually that wilderness wandering that celebrated after the Passover. Jesus, Jesus did what the people of God were unable to do. It actually foreshadows all the way back to the garden where our ancient enemies snuck into our, our first parents' hearts and minds and created doubt and complexity about how they understood God and had them actually turn away from Him. And there was a promise that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that God would send one to destroy this serpent. So John just like throws all that at you. Hey, this is not a sentimental story about a guy washing some feet. This is something that's been planned for a long time. And there are cosmic forces at play in this actual moment. So when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, who's one of the twelve, the inner circle, one of Jesus' disciples, he put in his heart to actually betray him. So it's far from sentimental. This is a moment of, of conflict. A moment of betrayal, a moment of sadness, a moment of of anger, a moment of all kinds of emotions colliding around this little scene with this little group of people in this upper room. And then he goes on, he's talked about the devil, he's talked about the time, he's talked about this betrayer, and just so you don't miss it, that this Jesus isn't going to be a victim. He says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. 
Knowing that He sat in the seat of the One who Colossians says is preeminent over all things. Knowing that He had all the power in the universe and had come from God and was going back to God, now He comes and washes feet. Hey, that's a time that John layers for us because he wants to show us who God is and what He has done because you ask, where is God in this tragedy? Where is God when there's evil at work? Where is God when I don't understand? Where is God when I've been enslaved? Where is God when things have lasted a long time where I've been praying and crying out? It doesn't seem like anything is changing. Where is God? For three verses, John just labors to put the context in place so that when you see God, in verse 4, rise up from the supper, lay aside His outer garments to disrobe. Think about the dignity of that. Think about the humiliation of that. He disrobes takes a towel, ties it around his waist. Verse 5, he pours water into a basin and begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He says to Simon, or Simon says, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? This unsettling scene where the king of the universe is now serving Simon hits this space and it's unsettling to him. Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus says, what I'm doing you don't understand. But afterward, not just this moment, but what this moment is pointing to, you you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus. I I can't understand this. I can't receive this. I don't understand what you're doing. I won't let this happen. He says, if you don't wash you, then you have no share with me. When Peter says, well then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus says to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew that one was going to betray him. That's why he said not all of you are clean. Okay, it gets a little complicated there at the end. Can you hang with me here, though, in this scene of what's going on? What we see is this pointer to the cross that's happening in this context. There is a pattern here that Jesus, from a high place of hosting the table, sitting in an exalted place at this meal, humbles himself as a servant, takes on kind of the actions of a slave, actually. One that actually Jewish slaves were, were um, like not, not able to do or didn't have to do. It was so beneath Jewish slaves, they didn't have to do this kind of foot washing. Jesus takes that on. He engages in this act of service, and then he actually, in verse 12, resumes his place after he's washed their feet. So you see exaltation down to service, back to glorification. Philippians 2 would have a real similar pattern. It would tell us that Jesus humbled Himself, took took on flesh, came into our world, emptied Himself, took on the form of a servant, came into our world, and it describes that service not simply as washing feet, but as laying down His very life. And after that, it says that He was taken back up to be with the Father to be glorified. So you have this moment of this idea of where, where He is in His sovereignty and His power in control. He's serving, and then He's glorified again. This scene is pointing to what Jesus would do in just a matter of days when he would die on the cross. So then we ask, okay, where is Jesus in this? What is Jesus saying about the evil and brokenness? Or what is Jesus doing about the evil and brokenness in the world? Well, he came into our world and he took on this form of a servant, not just washing the betrayer's feet and the denier's feet and the doubter's feet, but he, he washes them in this moment and then soon he will actually die. For them. 
It's a, a scene, it's an illustration of something that happens, and now Jesus will explain the significance of it. He's going he's to teach them through the next few chapters of what's happening in this space of, of Jesus actually fulfilling all the promises of God to make a way for us to be healed and forgiven and set free, and to bring about justice and righteousness and mercy into the world. So, so the, the scene is a, a foretaste or an example the washing of feet is a, a small example of what it would mean for Jesus to humble himself as a servant and die in our place. So, so like uh, Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't just stop in this slave-like posture of washing feet. He would actually go all the way to engage with his own death as a way to make you right and whole. And that's the afterword that Jesus is talking about. Hey, what I'm doing right now, you can't understand but just like I raised the dead and then told you I was the resurrection, just like I fed 5,000 and told you I was the bread, just like I healed and told you I was the light of the world, I want you to understand I'm serving you because I'm about to actually serve you in ultimate ways so that you would be forgiven. It points to the cross. And in the middle of this, I was blown away all week. The two other characters that are featured in this story are Judas and then Peter. The sections that we didn't read talk through in detail Judas's betrayal and then Peter's kind of prediction of his denial. And so you have these people at the table with Jesus. He's washing their feet, knowing what's about to happen, which is also a portrait of the cross. Scriptures say that God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it wasn't just serving good people that had good intentions that were trying really hard. He actually gave his life for those who would betray him and those who would deny him. And friends, we're to find ourselves in that story in this circle, and in that space, seeing ourselves struggling with belief, struggling with doubt, struggling to know what God is doing, and watch Him actually touch and cleanse and come close. He actually did this in such a way to communicate to you what He was willing to do on your behalf to rescue and save you. Okay, I don't know if you've ever been a part of a foot-washing service before. Um, I won't ask for a raise of hands. They're... they're Kind of strange. I've only been a part of one or two of them. I have a faint memory as a kid. We were nominally Catholics. So I, can re I remember being in a big room and this guy doing something. But I don't really know if I actually got my feet washed, but I have that memory. That's my first foot washing memory. I have memories of being at summer camp and our counselors sitting around in a circle with us and washing our feet one night. And I just remember it being like really beautiful and meaningful and really awkward. And a little giggly, your feet are tickly a little bit. These are high school boys in this space. But, but it was this moment where these leaders are looking you in the eye, praying for you, and just they're, they're kneeled down in front of you. It was like so uncomfortable and so beautiful. And I think I like maybe three years later when I was a counselor, I think I washed some high school boys' feet when I was in college as their counselor. Same exact experience, this kind of awkward, beautiful, intimate moment. I've done that. The other time that I washed feet was actually when I proposed to Adrian. So I took a page out of Jesus' book and I got on my knees in front of this beautiful woman that I wanted to marry me. And what's fascinating and kind of ironic is after a day of lying to her about what we were doing and why we were where we were and I don't know what's going to happen after that. No, we're just going to the park just to hang out. Well, who knows what we'll do after that. After a day fully of lying to her, I got on a knee and asked her to trust me. I asked her to like follow me ask her to, to be to be in a relationship with me and and in my mind it was going to be so smooth to wash her feet 
and then open up the towel and there would be a ring in the towel. I don't know if it was that smooth, but it was a, it was a way to like engage, like, hey, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. But that was filled with tears and was a little bit awkward and pretty intimate and overwhelming. It was all of those things in one space. I think Peter, when he experiences this, is kind of overwhelmed. And whether he's a high school boy or in those spaces, he's just kind of going like, I, I don't know what to do with all this. Hey, if this is a portrait of the cross, I think the cross is that much more awkward. Because the cross says to you, hey, you can't save yourself. You can't heal yourself. You can't make yourself okay. I mean, how awkward to hear that in a self-reliant world where you're told over and over again, your hope is up to you. You're to build your own identity. You're, you're supposed to make yourself great. You can be anything you want to be. Here comes this awkward moment where the God of the universe says, oh, no, no, you're so hopeless. The only way you could actually be in a relationship with me is if I were to cleanse you. And the only way that I could actually cleanse you is to die this death that you deserve to die in your place to make a way for you to be forgiven and set free. That's how bad it is. So just like this moment here, it's kind of a, a strange thing. Hey, Jesus, you shouldn't be doing this. Jesus, you shouldn't be on your knees. We should be washing your feet. I think sometimes we hit the cross and we go, I don't know, maybe I could figure it out. Maybe I could rescue myself. Maybe I could actually save myself. Or maybe I need like a little bit of a bump or some help. I'll, I'll trust Jesus some, but the rest of the time I'm going to do good, try hard, and prove myself. And this scene pushes into that a way to kind of shatter our hopes. And it's given to betrayers and doubters and deniers. So where you find yourself there, and you wonder, well, not just what's God doing in the evil world, but what's he doing with your evil? What's he doing with the darkness in your heart? What's he doing with the darkness around you? This same God steps into this space and he is willing to take on the form of a servant, even giving not just uh, your feet a washing, but giving his very life to actually come and rescue and heal. This scene, friends, is pointing us to something much, much deeper. It's a pattern in John and what he's doing there is showing you the heart of God. And it's the heart of God that moves towards suffering. It doesn't, doesn't stand away from suffering. It moves towards it, gets in the middle of it, is actually on its knees in the spaces that are most desperate. That's where God is. What you see in the Gospels is Jesus constantly going to the places that we most need him. The places of the most doubt, the most question, the most mess, the most pain. But the most evil, the spaces where, where they're the darkest is where Jesus goes. So, so where, where has he been this week? He, he's been in spaces like this. Washing feet, having already died on the cross, sacrificing and serving. And he did that because he knew the only thing that would fix the evil that we saw this week. And again, I realize this week was just another example of deep, dark things that are around us all the time. And you could zoom out of our city to the world and just go, oh my gosh, like how do we even sleep at night with all the pain and all the things that are going on? You have to numb yourself somehow. You have to, have to kind of resist engaging with it with your full heart because it's so overwhelming unless there's a God who does things like this, who washes feet and then goes to a cross. So, so this scene points us to the cross. And then, and then quickly, I just was struck this week of how it provides this provocative contrast for us. Everything I'm saying is pretty counterintuitive, right? If you were going to make a religion, it would be one where you could perform really well and get rewarded for that. So Christianity already kind of shatters our expectations when it says, 
man, you can't perform. You can't do enough good things. You needed a God to come and actually die in your place, which is what we will celebrate on Good Friday. He didn't stay dead. He rose again, which is what we celebrate on Easter. That is the, Christ, the Christian story, the Christian solution to, to your problem. So already it's been fairly provocative, but, but if you just come inside this scene for a moment and just look at what he is pushing against, think about our obsession with celebrity culture. In chapter 12 of John, we see the triumphal entry, which is this king-like parade. We'll come back to this on Palm Sunday in a couple of weeks. We skipped it, but if you just turn the page, you'll see the triumphal entry is a king's welcome into the city. This would be the moment you want to capture the momentum. This is the moment you want to send out some really provocative tweets so that people kind of understand how important you are. This is where you want to get the, the kind of uh, the propaganda machine revved up so people understand who you are and what you're doing. And after the triumphal entry, rather than coming to this place of prominence, what we see is him in a room around people who are confused. And at least three of the 12 have really overt reactions to him that are not amazing and awesome. Jesus pushes against our obsession with celebrity in this space. It's provocative in the contrast of what we think we need, of what we feel drawn to, of what we look to to actually save and rescue us. And your dissatisfaction with that should be an echo to the idea that's not what you need. What you need is this. You need someone to die in your place. You need someone to come and serve you where you couldn't serve yourself to actually make a way for you to be cleansed. That's what you needed. You didn't need someone on the outside to just follow and admire. It wouldn't be enough to save you. And so it just says something about what we are following, what we're longing for, who we're emulating, what we're following up and reading on, who, whose stories that we can't get away from. I don't have a whole lot there. I don't know what else to do except to say what he does in this space, I think, blows up our inclination and reflex towards celebrity. It also blows up this idea of the abuse of power. We're power drunk in our culture. We, we give ourselves away to those who have power. We, we desperately desire power. And in this moment, in a provocative way, what Jesus does is contrast what, what we are trying to be ourselves with what, what He actually had. The one who had everything in the universe actually lays that down as a servant. It pushes against kind of the abuses of power. It pushes against our quest for power. And it also pushes against our obsession with, with cancel culture. I'm increasingly troubled with the way Christians are just eviscerating each other online. I, I don't know. There's a place to call false teaching false teaching. But there are places where someone just has a different idea than you or, or values get ranked differently than yours do. And we will quickly cancel someone like at the drop of a hat think of who like you're disgusted by you used to follow now you have nothing to do with them it's not just in christian circles it's a it's a culture thing we have one wrong move and someone is just done okay against that posture which is a real fragile posture by the way it's a real anxious posture by the way what you have is jesus knowing this guy is going to betray him knowing this person is going to deny him not canceling them washing their feet. This Christian posture of service is way past just canceling somebody you disagree with and actually moves towards showing them love. Jesus says really provocative things like you should love your enemies. And remember it says he loves them all the way to the end. He died on the cross for his enemies. That, that's what Jesus is showing us. So, so it's contrasting our normal disposition and normal heart. 
Which maybe there's a side note here. If you fear that God has canceled you because of what happened last night, what you pledged you would never do again as you started the new year and you've already done it three times, the thing that you just can't get over that nobody else really knows about, but man, it is ripping you apart on the inside. The thing that happened in college that you thought was going to be buried and now you're afraid it's going to resurface. And you wonder, would God cancel you? Here in this space, he knows exactly what's going on and he still does this act of service to them. He dies on the cross to actually redeem and rescue his very enemies. I think there's a hope in that space that God is showing us in these chapters what he came to do, what he cares about, what, he, what his heart is like. And it, it wasn't to cancel you. It was to welcome you. Can you imagine this moment? The very God of the universe that you have sinned against, on his knees, almost naked, so stripped down, almost naked, humbling himself as a servant and a slave in, in ways to bless, ways to cleanse. Far from cancel, he came to cleanse you. There's a provocative contrast that gives us a lot of hope, and it also reorients our heart a little bit. To follow Jesus, which is what he's trying to do. He's trying to tell you what it looks like to follow him. He's giving final instructions to his disciples saying, hey, this is what it means to be kind of one of my people. This is what it means to actually trust me. This is what it means to, to be one who's reconciled to me. This is how you're supposed to live. It pushes against this idea that we have of celebrity and of power and, and our ability quickly just to turn on somebody who actually made a mistake and needs grace. And God doesn't actually turn away from us in that space. There's something really comforting for me as I prayed for you this week. That might be for like one of you. I don't know. I, I live under a, a rock on social media. I don't even have any social media uh, in that space. I, I don't understand all of it, but I know it's toxic. I know that. And I know the way that we're treating one another is in overt violation to this powerful command he gives. And we'll close here. Look in verse 34 and 35. What we're skipping over is just a commentary on Judas' betrayal. After this section, he'll talk about Peter's denial. Those are the features in this chapter. And Jesus says in verse 34, after he's done this act, remember he does something and then he explains it. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you would love one another. And you don't fill in the gaps on that. You don't get to imagine what that looks like. He says, just as I have loved you, so you're also to love one another. Not, not in manipulative ways, not in ways that kind of benefit you in the end, not in ways that, that please people around you, not in ways that make you look amazing. No, no, to love the way that I have loved you, this, this servant emptying of himself, also going all the way to the cross, right? The call to follow Jesus is a call to die. And you're not forgiving anybody's sins in those spaces, of course not. But there is an act of giving up yourself, of serving to the degree that you actually would lay down your rights, your preferences, your very life, if need be, to show love to one another. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you would love one another just as I have loved you, those who betrayed, those who denied, those who doubted. You're also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. After he's shown us this, he calls us into this. So that first section there, he, he says to, to love the way that I've loved you. This is uh, something else Jesus would say, the greatest commandments is to love God and, and to love one another. And you actually can't love one another if you don't love God, right? So he's saying, in light of receiving what I've done for you, now actually then pour that out to those around you. And then he says, this has an amazing witness, apologetic, 
Um, it, ha- it has a message to the world. As you love one another, you show people that you are my disciples. So far from a sentimental story that we just get encouragement from, this becomes a pattern of living, Jesus is saying. That we are to follow him in this space. He says, have you seen this in, uh, earlier in the text? As you've watched me do this, now you're blessed if you go do it as well. To not just hear it and think about it, but to actually go and do it. He calls us to this sacrificial love to lay down our life to one another. And he says, what's going on in that space is you will be communicating to the world that I am real and that, that you follow me. The disciple actually isn't making much of themselves. They're making much of the one they're, they're being discipled by. So it's not a call for you to look amazing in the world's eyes. It's a call for you to, to exalt who Jesus is. And he says, people will know that you're tied to me. People will know that you're, you're following. People will know that I'm influencing you. People will know that, that I'm the one who actually has your affection. And as you not just come to church and do religious things and give and serve, it's when you actually pour out your life to love one another. And this would just make sense, right? Because the ultimate expression of God's love for us was for him to lay down his life on our behalf. And he calls us into this cross-shaped love. He's going to explain it over the next couple of chapters, but, but there's a powerful command here. As we watch this scene, Jesus is saying, let me just interpret for you what's going on. This is the way that I want you to live. And it's made possible because of what he has done for us. It's not something that we simply kind of get the energy for or get inspired towards. It's something that flows out of actually following him. You'll, people know you're my followers if you do what I did. That's what followers do. Disciples love what their teacher loves. They, they do what their teacher did. They follow the commands of their teacher. And he's saying, hey, if you're going to be rightly related to me, this is what I want you to do. So I think in those spaces, this text gives us a beautiful way to just be honest about the things of the week and what we needed. We need a God like this. A God who would step into the suffering, into the betrayal, into the doubting, into the denial, and give himself up so that we could actually be rescued and redeemed. That's what he's doing. That's where he was this week. That's how he thinks about what happened in the news, and that's how he thinks about you. So as we get ready to kind of wrap this part and make some application, there'll be folks over here on this front pew who would love to pray with you if stuff stirring in your heart. Even this week, man, you're overwhelmed. You just need someone to pray for you. There'll be folks here on this pew that would love to do that. If you want to respond to something in this passage or something God's saying to you, or there's something else in your life that just needs prayer, come here to this space as we begin to take communion. For followers of Jesus who, who are saying, all right, I am following Christ. I believe what he did on the cross is what rescues and saves me. If that's your story, then I would invite you to come and take communion. And it's a reminder for you that what the foot washing was pointing to, Christ actually did all the way. He died in your place in a way that actually made you whole and forgiven. So Christians come and take communion as a way of declaring their confidence in the sacrifice of Jesus. His broken body and shed blood is your hope. It's the answer to the suffering in the world, and it's the answer to where you needed cleansing. If you're trusting him, come and take communion. We tear a piece of the bread off and we dip it in the cup. There'll be people at all these aisles, and there'll be a gluten-free station here in the middle. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm really thankful you're in the room. Jesus is showing you what he's like, because that's your question. Is he real? Is he trustworthy? Is he good? Does it matter? Is he relevant to my life? What Jesus is showing you in this text is, is he is good. He is powerful. And he was willing to lay down his power to serve you, to make a way for you to be forgiven and set free, which he calls cleansing in this text. 
There's prayers in the back of your bulletin that would give you some examples of what it would sound like to pray, but I would invite you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, to stay in your seat and ask for God to speak to you. Maybe read this passage again, pray whatever's on your heart and mind, but, but Jesus wants you to know what he did for you to make a way for you to be forgiven and set free, and he invites you to trust him even this morning. If you can talk about that with somebody on the front row here, you can. I'll be available. would love to kind of engage with you about what Christ has done and what that means for, for your life. Would you bow your head with me and pray? Jesus, we come now and we ask for your help. The same help these disciples needed, we need now. They were confused and we're confused. They didn't quite get it and we don't quite get it. It's overwhelming to think about what you did for us. I just pray now by your spirit, you would apply it to our hearts. Would you give clarity of what you did? Would you help it expose the things that we're drawn to besides you? And would you do healing, cleansing work in the room? We have lots of things we need. And the very one who was with God and returned to God made it possible for us to be healed and cleansed and forgiven. So we we ask for your help now in this moment. Would you fill the room with faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come when you're ready and then we'll sing together.